0: Welcome back to another episode of First Things in the Morning, the podcast to make sure you learn something new while going through the menial tasks of your morning routine. This podcast has no set subject, and it's just a journey of me, a twenty-year-old, learning about new stuff every week—or every other week because I'm not great at uploading—but we're, we're working on it. To bring some structure into it, we have different series within the podcast, so everyone knows what kind of content a certain episode has. We have history episodes we have medical episodes check out the podcast description to find out about the different series today we are starting a new series bodies where we talk about all the criminal stuff that goes on in our world i always wonder if bad people ever consciously decide for themselves that they are in fact bad people like david mitchell does in that one nazi sketch hands
1: are we the baddies
0: as for today's guy I don't think he ever cared enough to think about if he was one of the bodies. Everyone knows about Al Capone. He's a mafia guy, but I don't know much more about him than that, so so let's dive into the life of the infamous Al Capone, a.k.a. Scarface. Where did he come from? Who made him into the gangster he was? What were his crimes and what ended up happening to him in the end? Alfonso Gabriel Capone was born January 17, 1899, in New York, to two Italian immigrants. His father was an honest, hard-working barber, and his mother was a deeply religious housewife. They were poor, but they took care of their children. They could and should have been the parents to eight good citizens, but somehow all of their sons went into the criminal life, and all their daughters relied on the money coming from it. As a kid, Al started the street gang. But the story goes that he was, even in his younger years, very gentlemanly. They stole and they vandalized, but not from what he deemed good people. Allegedly, when he saw some kids from a different street gang steal an old lady's washboard, he turned his gang on them, beat them up, and gave the old lady back her washboard. But then again, he was kicked out of school when he was 14, when he hit a female teacher. So... (laughs) Take the whole gentleman thing with a grain of salt. He never went back to school, probably because he met his future boss and mentor, Johnny Torrio, shortly after leaving school. I'll try to go straight for a while, working in a bowling alley, a candy shop, even taking some shifts at a factory. But it quickly became clear that that life just didn't suit him. So he started working as a bartender and a bouncer, which is a career path that often leads to shady contacts. One of which was Johnny Torrio. He was an Italian-born New York-based gangster. His nickname was The Fox, because he was known for being very cunning and having a lot of finesse. He came up in the criminal world the same way many did. He joined the street gang, quickly became its leader, started working as a bouncer and just worked his way up from there. His gang, the James Street Boys, later became part of the bigger Five Points gang, run by the boxer Paul Kelly. After the James Street Boys Gang had raised enough money, they opened a billiards parlor, intended for his group, but it quickly became a popular hangout for everyone shady, giving Torio many useful contacts. Torio learned everything he knew from Kelly uh, how to dress classy, not swear so much, how to be a gentleman, instead of a rug rat like all the other uh, gangsters in the area. And in turn, Torio would teach Al the same lessons later on. Al joined the James Street Boys, and through Torrio's connections, he would go on to join the Five Points Gang by the time he was only 16. He started working as a bartender in the bar and brothel of one of Torrio's friends, a man named Frankie Yale, who will come up multiple times later on and was very important in Al Capone's life. Al got into a scrap over a girl in that very bar, after telling her she had a nice ass, which, yeah, that's pretty rude, especially for the 20s. The brother of the girl, in an effort to defend her honor, pulled out a knife and slashed him on his left cheek. The scar would never go away, and it quickly gained him the name Scarface. He hated that nickname, and it's the reason that in many pictures you can only see the right part of his face. That's how he posed to hide his scar. But by the time Al was 21, he had seen a lot more violence than just that little knife fight in a bar. He had shot a guy to death while he was robbing him from his gambling profits. He was questioned about it by the police, but then he was let go. He also assaulted a gang member from a rival gang, the White Hands. The White Hands promised retribution, as you do as a gang, it's the main trade. And this was one of the reasons why he left New York and followed Johnny Torrio to Chicago. The reason Torrio had left to go to Chicago was to help his uncle, Giacomo Colissimo, who was also known as Big Jim. He was the head of the Colosimo mob, um, which was more often referred to as the outfit. Colosimo's empire was enormous. He had over a hundred brothels in Chicago and also owned restaurants and gambling establishments. Because of his immense wealth, Colosimo had fallen victim to multiple extortion cases. And that's where Torrio and his new pupil Al Capone came in. They were his protection. Torrio made quick work of the extortionists by murdering them as they came to pick up their money. Seems easy enough. After that, they both stayed on his payroll and Torrio became his number two. Torrio took care of all Big Jim's little problems. One of those was a former sex slave who had escaped and was now willing to testify. So Torrio also killed her. Don't mistake any of these men for any level of honorability. But then 1919 came around, and as we know, that's when prohibition started in the United States. This meant that alcohol was no longer legal anywhere in the States. But as with drugs, as with sex work, alcohol is not something people just let you take away. And it became a huge bootlegging enterprise. But Big Jim already made his fortune, and he already sold illegal alcohol in many of his restaurants. So he really didn't see a reason to take any more risks and start bigger smuggling activities. But Torrio really wanted to a bootleg and make some cash off of this idiotic law. When Big Jim left his aunt, not much later, uh, for a 19 year old dancer, Torrio decided that he would become the boss if needed and he put a hit out on Big Jim Colosimo. This is where we have to speculate a little because no one is completely sure who pulled the trigger the popular belief is that Torio ordered Al to fix the situation, and Al hired Frankie Yale, his former boss. Torrio called Big Jim to come to the restaurant to pick something up, and when he arrived, noticed that Torrio wasn't there, and tried to leave again, he was gunned down in the doorway of his own restaurant, and instantly died. With Big Jim out of the picture, the outfit needed a new leader, and Torrio had made damn sure that his name would come out of that hat. After Toria was appointed, Al became his number two guy. They moved into the suburbs of Chicago as well, widening their net. One of the suburbs was Cicero. It was a working class community where bribery was very effective. Al bribed local officials to run his gambling and beer joints. And when a new Cicero election came up, he bribed every voter to vote for his favorite. And those who could not be bribed were beaten and or murdered. It was a very bloody time, but at the end, the Cicero local government was headed by someone who was on his payroll. To be fair, he paid a price for this gain, because during the Cicero election war, his brother Frank Capone was killed during a police shootout. It is said to have made Al way more aggressive as a gangster and more desperate to get anything he could out of life before his time would come as well. Before long, there were 160 gambling joints and 123 saloons in Cicero alone, all by doing of Al. He himself once estimated that 50% of the police force was on his payroll. He got a DUI, or whatever driving drunk was called back then, when he was 23, and after the crash he got out and angrily yelled and pointed a gun at the driver of the other car, a taxi driver. He was arrested, but quickly let go again. Al was untouchable. The police were his. But not everyone in Cicero was willing to just go with it. Robert St. John was a newspaper editor, who was both unafraid of Al Capone and fed up with the local corruption. He exposed multiple paid-off town leaders and wrote an in-depth article about the dirty dealings of the Capone brothels. Here is a piece from an interview where he talks about how Al Capone reacted to that.
1: And of course, uh, that made me an enemy of the Capones. As I was going to my office early one morning, I glanced up and saw a big black touring car come roaring toward the intersection. This car screeched to a halt and four men jumped out. I recognized Ralph Capone immediately, and they headed for me, and I was halfway across the intersection. I dropped uh, to the ground, curled up, put my head between my legs and uh, they gave me a real working over. blackjacks and bellies. and but the interesting weapon they used was a cake of soap in a knitted woollen sock. This was one of their the Capone's favorite uh, murder instruments because if they uh, if using this instrument, if they hit uh, the base in the neck, in the base of the skull, uh, uh, you can kill a person.
0: But he didn't die. He did have to go to the hospital, obviously. And surprisingly enough, when he was ready to leave and went to pay his medical bill, it was already paid for, courtesy of Scarface himself. It did not appease St. John, and he could not be bought even after that. So instead, Al Capone bought controlling interest in St. John's newspaper, the Cicero Tribune. This way, He would have a say in what was going to be published, since John was nothing if not full of integrity. So he packed his stuff and left Chicago altogether, started working for a different paper in a different city. Al might have never cared for integrity that much, but he was very loyal, and expected everyone else to be loyal to him as well. When a bootlegger assaulted one of his men, Al killed him, the bootlegger. Point blank, in front of three witnesses, Curiously, no one seemed to remember the incident when the police asked them to stand witness. Al left town for a day, then turned himself in with an alibi. There could be no conviction, because there weren't enough fools who were willing to be in a jury for his cases, and no one would stand witness. The outfit had one big rival, and that was the Northside Gang. In 1924, it was run by Dion O'Banion. The Northside Gang was Irish-owned, while the outfit was, of course, Italian. O'Banion had it out for Torio. He ended up framing him and Torio had to do a stint in jail. So our good friend Yale came back into the picture. And he gunned down O'Banion in retaliation, just as he had probably done with Big Jim. This set off another long gang war, where retaliation and bloodshed were the main objective. O'Banion was buried and two others took over the Northside gang. George Moran was nicknamed the Bug. And himi-wise. In the early 20s, there was one thing that really changed the murder business, and that was a Tommy gun, a submachine gun that was, when combined with a moving vehicle, a very effective weapon. Drive-by shootings became an ordinary thing in the mafia world very quickly. After Toria became the target of multiple assassination attempts, he cut it quits, and he retired to Italy, leaving the entire enterprise to his boy Al Capone. It was 1925, Al was only 26 years old and 14 of those years he had spent as a dirt poor boy in New York. And now he was the leader of one of the biggest criminal organizations in the Chicago underworld. He was one of the most powerful men of the time. During one Tommy gun attack, uh, coming from Al's side with Northside gang members as a target, a government official got in the crosshairs and was killed. Initially, Al went into hiding for a bit, but he returned to Chicago picked up a reporter, and took him on a trip to local police stations and, ge- and county jails, asking if there was anyone, a cop, a detective, anyone at all, who wanted to arrest him. No one wanted anything to do with him. And because he brought the reporter, now everyone in the city knew that Alfonso Capone was no wanted man. Meanwhile, he was raking in money. Newspapers of the time estimated that his operation made about $100 million a year and not a single dollar of that sum was legally obtained. He started living a lavish lifestyle and did not try to stay out of the public eye at all, even though Torrio had warned him to stay low-key before he left to Italy. But he was gregarious and generous, and he supplied the people with their beloved alcohol. In the public eye, he became somewhat of a Robin Hood figure, and the papers reported on his every move, as if he was some kind of celebrity. One example of such Robin Hood behavior comes from one of the many failed assassination attempts on his life. This one on the 20th of September 1926. He was having lunch with his bodyguard, Frankie Rio, when a machine gun fire was heard outside. Surprisingly, there was no shattering glass or people screaming in agony that you would usually hear after guns were fired. It was almost as if only blanks had been fired. Frankie was a bright fellow, so he realized it was a trap to get them to stand up and have a look at what happened outside. He threw Al onto the ground and was just in time for the second round of gunfire, and this time they were shooting actual bullets. The restaurant was destroyed, and after the Tommy fire stopped, a gunman got out of the car, went to the doorway of the restaurant, and unloaded another storm of bullets on the establishment. An estimated 5,000 bullets were fired within 10 minutes but surprisingly, no one was killed. But one person was hurt, a mother who, according to the stories, would have no doubt gone blind if Al hadn't made sure to pay for her medical treatment and get her the best care in town. In this story, he seems to be nothing but a target for terrible hoodlums, while he was a gentleman who helped out the poor. With stories like these, it's not hard to see why people might think he was something of a defender of the people, instead of a hardened murderer and gangster that he no doubt was. October of that year, Himi Weiss was killed, one of the new leaders of the Northside gang. The killer was never identified, but it's a fair assumption to make that Al was the one who ordered the hit as a retaliation on his own near-death experience earlier that year. That was the thing about Al, too. He ordered hits, but since he had gotten his command, he very rarely pulled the trigger himself, making him, at least in his own eyes, Technically, not that much of a murderer. He saw himself more as a businessman, spending most of his days in his office, taking calls and signing off on executive decisions, and not so much as a gangster. But directly or indirectly, he was very much a cold-blooded killer. One of the most infamous attacks orchestrated by Al's gang was the Valentine's Day Massacre. It happened on February 14th, 1929. Um... 2122 122 Clark Street. Six Northside gang members and one very unlucky friend were hanging out in the garage that was the main headquarters for the gang's uh, liquor side business. The story goes that they were lured there with the promise of a shipment of great quality whiskey. But all but one were dressed up in their finest clothes, which seems out of place for men who were expecting to be loading heavy grates out of a truck. We might never know what the real reason was um, that they were in that garage that day, but we do know that they never left. Four guys came in, two of which were dressed as Chicago police officers. The Northside guys assumed that it was a police raid, and they knew the procedure. They dropped their weapons and put their hands against the wall. This turned out to have been a fatal mistake. As they were standing there defenseless, the quote-unquote police officers and their two comrades opened fire on them, and more than 150 bullets found their targets. Well, they found a target, but most likely uh, the real target of this attack was the remaining gang leader, George Moron, the bug. But he has, hadn't been present at the time. He happened to be on the other side of the street, and when he saw the police arrive, he quickly left, not realizing that it was a trap. All seven died, but one of them, Frank Gusenberg, Held on long enough to talk to the real, actual police. When they asked him to identify his assailants, he just said, I'm not gonna talk. Nobody shot me. This statement was, however, disproven by the 22 bullets that were present in his body. He was very much shot. Even in his last moments, he wasn't willing to become a snitch. Which seems so dumb to me. But I guess that's why I'm not a gangster. It never became clear who the shooters were, but Al himself had, as always, an airtight alibi. He had been on a lovely getaway in Florida at the time of the shooting, so it couldn't have been him. Of course, the shooting was on his payroll, but he wouldn't be getting away with things for much longer. As we enter into 1929, public sentiment about Al Capone changes after a very brutal baseball batty murder on two hitmen that were out for Al's blood. This time, Al did take part in the murder himself. It was so brutal that even other gangsters now started to distance himself from Al. More and more people wanted to see him dead, and there was a $50,000 contract out on his head. He realized he wouldn't be safe out in the street, so he organized a little show where one of his policemen would arrest him and his bodyguard for carrying concealed weapons and put him behind safe, cozy bars for a little while, maybe a month or so. But he hadn't counted on a very ballsy judge, who dared to give him an entire year in prison. Bribery didn't work, so Al was forced to run his business over the phone. And that turned out to be a terrible year to be locked up. From the inside, he could do nothing but watch, as the feds closed in on many of his people. His brother was arrested, and so was his number two guy, Frank Nitti. Um, Both, and all the others, were caught on tax evasion charges. By the time Al got out in 1930, he had been declared public enemy number one. And he no longer had to be scared of whoever was now the leader of the Northside gang. Because a way bigger concern were the Feds, uh, who were coming from him- for him like they did for his people. Many people might have heard that it was a group of Prohibition agents who nailed Al Capone. Um, these agents were famous because they never took a bribe, and they were thus nicknamed the Untouchables. But that's not true, they just did a couple of raids on some of his uh, speakeasies. But they weren't his actual downfall. That were the IRS taxmen. They already put the others away for income tax, and they worked on doing the same to him as well. It wasn't easy, because Al technically didn't own anything big. His house and his cars were all in the name of either his wife or his mother. It took them about five years to find and decrypt the coded ledgers. Uh, which talked about all his financial schemings and to hunt down the bookkeepers who were involved in writing them. The nice thing about tax is that you don't need witnesses to talk about how someone evaded them. You can just show that they didn't pay as much as they should have. So by June 5th, 1931, they finally won, when Al Capone was sentenced to 22 counts of income tax evasion. After all his murders, after all his pimping and gambling and bootlegging, They got him on tax, which is such a sucker way to go out. He was sentenced to 11 years, and because by then the depression had hit, and everyone was paying the high taxes on their low salaries, there wasn't much sympathy for a big spender such as Al Capone evading those very costs they had to work so hard for to be able to pay. He tried to bribe the jury, but the judge got on and replaced the entire jury just moments before the hearing began leaving him hopeless. Even still, 11 years, it was way more than anyone, especially Al himself, expected. First he went to the federal prison in Atlanta, but later on he was moved to the infamous Alcatraz prison in August of 1934. His life on the inside was completely different. He got no special treatment and he kept mainly to himself. He cell out his time, being only a bit inconvenienced when a fellow prisoner tried to murder him with a pair of scissors in 1936. The scissors didn't do much damage, but the degenerative effects of syphilis did. He was diagnosed with this illness uh, in 1938, but he had most likely contracted it from one of his sex workers years previously. His mental capabilities declined fast. He got out in 1940 and spent his last years poor, with no power, and little bit about him. And on January 25th, 1947, he died from cardiac arrest. By then, he is said to have only had the mental capacities of a 12 year old. Even though he hadn't been anyone important in 10 years, he had a big Chicago funeral with hundreds of people showing up to pay their respect. And that was just the end of Al Capone, syphilis and tax. <laughs> I think the moral of the story is to if you ever come out on top um, on the criminal world pay your taxes and don't have unprotected sex that way you will never be caught and you will never catch anything which is the best way to be a criminal that was all i have for you today a bit of a long episode but i hope you enjoyed it um a lot of work goes into these episodes so if you like it please rate and review it on itunes apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen it tells the robots that people like the show and it will encourage them to show other p- new listeners um, that this show exists, which is great for people like me. <laughs> if you want to suggest a topic, uh, correct me on a terrible mistake or just say hi, you can do so on Twitter at in the morning pod or email me firstthingspod at gmail.com. That being said, I hope you have a great day and see you back next time First Things in the Morning.